Hey, it's my honor to be here at Faith Baptist Church today. I love this church. I love you folks and uh, the ministry you have in this community for a long time and consider it a privilege that uh, your pastor is a friend of mine. We have a lot in common. He was raised in uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. I'm a Kansan. And so it's been kind of interesting to share uh, experiences back in, in the uh, Sunflower State. He has lived about 35 miles from where I grew up. I grew up in a metropolitan area, Meriden, Kansas. There's about 350 people that live there if you count the cats and dogs. But it's near Topeka, Kansas, and that's the capital city, so that, that made it okay. So it's a long time from then till now, and it's good to see you today. We're going to put a passage of scripture on the screen. We're going to read it, and then I'm going to look at a few things with you about it. So if you want to just, uh, if you want to just listen, uh, I'll read it. If you want to read it together, it's on the screen. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flaming fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of the mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John wrote five books. The Apostle John wrote five books during his uh, lifetime. And uh, the first one is a gospel tract. Do you know what a gospel tract is? It's a little piece of paper that folds over usually. You know, you stick it in your pocket or your purse, ladies. And you give it out to people if, if they want to take it and it presents the gospel to them. That's a, a large gospel tract, but that's what the Gospel of John is. In the last, uh, not the last chapter, chapter 20, in the last part of that chapter, he says, this is the reason I've written these things, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through him. Uh, if you were to take time, and we, I promise you will not, but, you know, if, if you were to do that, though, you would see almost every chapter is someone coming to Jesus. Uh, good people, bad people, religious people, unreligious people. For instance, you've got uh, in chapter 1, there's some disciples of John the Baptist. He points a finger at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And they become followers of Jesus. In chapter 2, they go to a wedding and some believe in him because he changes water into wine. Chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the most well-known, famous uh, spiritual leaders in Israel at that time, comes to Jesus by night. And you find out at the end of the book that he's become a disciple since then. In the fourth chapter, you have uh, another individual coming to Christ. 
and becomes one of the greatest missionaries in the New Testament. She's standing in a well, and Jesus comes there on purpose to get to her and uh, tells her about herself. She'd been married five times, living with the guy, uh, going through a a lot of the problems people go through, and Jesus looks her up and lets her know that he's willing to forgive her, and she becomes a, a, a disciple. And some, when guys come to, the, uh, to try to find Jesus, she says, you better listen to this guy. See for yourself. Do you know the best testimony you can give somebody is not to try to take a long time and explain all the theological stuff about the plan of salvation. Just tell them, check him out yourself. When you come to Jesus, you're not ever going to be the same. Amen? One way or the other, you'll never be the same. On and on and on. Chapter, chapter, chapter. People come to Jesus, and John says, this is why I've written this book, that people might believe in Jesus. In 1 John, he writes it so that we might know that we have everlasting life. Not just hope so. We can be assured of that. We can know Christ as our Savior, and our sins are forgiven. We can walk in that. And when Satan comes and knocks on our doors and says, look at you, you're no good. How could he ever love you? You point him to the cross and says, I don't know, but there it is. In 2 John, I love this. In 2 John, John writes a a short letter, and he says this. He says, I am so glad that I hear that some of God's children are reading the scriptures. George Whitfield was a great evangelist back in the 1700s. And he used to say this, and I used to read his sermons and and still would if I got a hold of them. I don't have them right now. And he used to say this to some of the five or six thousands of people that would come at a time in open fields in order that they might get there and, and hear him personally. He said, some of you people have so much dust on your Bibles that you could print the word damnation across the cover. Now, for years, as a young Christian, when I first read that, I thought he was talking to unchurched people who'd never heard the gospel and uh, telling them that they needed to dust off their Bible and read about Jesus so that they could get saved. Now, I think that might have been somewhat the case. But, I think it deals with a lot of us Christians who put a Bible on our coffee table so people can see it and never touch it. Or have a Bible on the shelf in the closet that grandma used to have and brag about how we believe the Bible, but we don't know what it says. Let me just encourage you. If you want to know God, you want to know Jesus, you want to know what's right, You want to know what's wrong? You get into the Bible. You read it yourself. Thank God for every seminary that's teaching the truth, the Word of God, as the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Thank God for every Christian teacher, public school, Christian school, wherever. But if you're going to know the thing personally, you're going to have to get personal about knowing the thing. You're going to have to get in the Bible. We all of us do that. We need to get in the scriptures 
and find out and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and open that to us as we look in and grow thereby. John said in Second John, he said, I'm really thankful that some believers are reading their Bible. And then you get into Third John, and Third John teaches us how to behave in church. Now that's a pretty good deal, you know. We all need to know how to get along in church. You know why the reason most churches have problems? And sometimes a church will become doctrinally unsound. It'll go into apostasy. It'll go into to allowing things or, or, or teaching things that are unscriptural. And that things that are bad are good and things that are good are bad and all that. And that's a reason to leave any church. But a lot of times people have problems because they don't like somebody, somebody hurt their feelings, they want to do this, I, I, want, to, I want to play guitar, but Sister Susie's doing that, and I can't do it, or, or I want to play the, or I, you know, I have, this, I have this spiritual gift, but I don't like it, so I want this spiritual gift that so-and-so has, all that stuff, you know? So Third John teaches us how to behave in church. John the Apostle's writing to Gaius, who is the pastor of that church, and trying to encourage him. I'll tell you one of the things that every pastor needs more and more of today, and that's encouragement. I've got a sermon I preach in revival meetings sometimes, How to Fire the Preacher. And uh, it deals with how to fire up the preacher, not get rid of him, strengthen him. And, uh, you know, the pray for him, have patience, perseverance, you know, work with him, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff. And so John's writing uh, an epistle, How to Behave in Church. There's a guy in that church, that church that he's writing to. His name is Diotrephes, and he loves to have the preeminence. Let me tell you something. Every pastor, every deacon, every trustee, every Sunday school teacher, every choir member, every musician, every member of the church is a rotten sinner outside of the grace of God. Amen? Every one of us. Some of us have gifts of one kind. Some of us have gifts of another. And one of the secrets of a church growing is that we take the gift that God gives us and we develop it. And we let everybody else do the same. And we work together as sinners, saved by grace. We forgive. We, we uh, have mercy. We, we give space. We do what we need to together as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. So third John deals with how to behave in church. And then revelation, and that's where we come to. And so here's the introduction concluding. In the book of Revelation, John says it's all about Jesus. You can get saved, you can know you're saved, you can grow in grace, you get in the Word, you can behave yourself in church, because it's all about Jesus. The first five words of chapter 1 give the reason for this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
There's one thing that John's writing about more than any else, more than any other thing. Now, if you're like a lot of us, you say, oh, no, he's going to talk from the Revelation. What in the world is that? I felt like that when I first got out of college and I went to my first uh, church in Savannah, Georgia. And they told me the youth group's been teaching Revelation on Wednesday nights. Are you? I thought to myself, seriously, I thought to myself, if I'm maybe 20 years from now, I'll start to almost feel like I can teach the book of Revelation. And then the last two years, uh, the next two years, the Lord caused me to get in the book of Revelation, not to teach it, but to learn it. And by the way, it made a Baptist out of me. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of a lot of other stuff. You have the first two chapters that deal with, uh, uh, well, chapter 2 and chapter 3 that deal with seven churches that represent all the churches of the church age. But it's not the revelation of the churches. In chapter 4 and uh, on until chapter 12, and then chapter 13 through chapter 20, you find uh, spoken that the, the, the heavenlies, the, 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 but it's not a revelation of those things and of the tribulation period after that and all, all of those things. It's not the revelation of those things. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you can get that, and then look at all these other things, they'll open up to you. Now, Notice here in the passage that we read. And look at what John saw. First place, look at verse 10. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Do you see where he was at? The Lord's Day, in, in case you're not aware, is Sunday. Amen? It's the first day of the week. And it's been called the Lord's Day ever since Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And so he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I want to ask you a question. This is the Lord's Day. Where are we? Where are we? We're in church. Are we in the Spirit? We need to be. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We come here to worship. We come here to get strength from each other. We come here to honor God. Jesus says, I'm with you where two or three are gathered together. So we gather together. Now notice some other things, because I want us to look at this revelation that John has uh, here in this passage. In the totality of the book, Jesus is revealed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Faithful and True, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. It's a revelation of Jesus of Jesus Christ and who he is. Now, notice the description that he gives. Notice where he's at in verse uh, 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Where's he at? He's in the middle of the lampstands. Do you know what the lampstands are? There's seven churches. Each, each lampstand is one of those seven churches that the Lord's going to tell him to write a letter to. And uh, those seven churches, if you read them seriously and not just get through them to get to the good stuff or the bad stuff, whichever you think, you'll find that every one of those churches has something good that the Lord commends and something not so good that he warns them about. He tells them, frankly, if you want your church to prosper, if you want it to continue, then this is what you need to do. Boom, 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 boom. Otherwise, I'm going to take your lampstand. Take the church away. But in the midst of, and so that's why that's important, because we read those things, we can see, okay, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do we need to do? What are we not doing? Those things. But in the midst of those seven churches, made up of born-again believers in Jesus, is Jesus himself, right in the middle. He's situated at the right hand of God. We'll look at that in a minute. But, but he's omnipresent, folks. Isn't that a fancy word? It means he's everywhere. He's right here this morning. And that's why we've gathered together so that we could join with him in praise and worship together with other believers. Uh, notice uh, he's there in the seven lampstands. Now notice his garment in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Notice what he's dressed in because it represents that he is our high priest we need to get into the book of Hebrews sometimes more than we do and in the book of Hebrews you find this over and over and over again that the Lord Jesus now in his present ministry sets at the, fa at the Father's right hand a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, without beginning, without ending. John sees him here as our high priest, the one who intercedes at the Father's right hand. Charles Wesley wrote, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, shows Satan coming before the throne of God. Job's a righteous man, godly man. And Satan says, have you considered your, you know, look at him. And uh, God says, have you considered him? Back and forth, a little dialogue going on there. Satan comes sometimes before the throne of God. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he comes sometimes and he'll say, okay, look at that Dick Griffin. 
He's done it again. What's he done this? See what he's done? A servant of you? Look at this. And Jesus says, No, Father, look at this. Okay. Interceding for us. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Interceding for us at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice something else. In saying that, I want to just stop a minute and get back into my notes. In the Old Testament, when a priest was ordained, sacrificial blood was placed on his right ear, his right thumb, and his right toe. It represented this. His thoughts were to be clean. His actions were to be holy to the Lord. His ventures were to be to go places where God wanted him to be. As the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, allowed himself to be nailed to that cross, they took that crown of thorns and they jutted it down on his head mercilessly. And blood flowed over his... No other blood sufficient than his own as it poured down over his right ear. And the nails in his wrists causing the blood to flow down his right thumb. And the nails in his feet caused the blood to flow on his right foot. Not only was he the sacrificial blood necessary to forgive sins, but he was becoming, being ordained high priest forever on that cross of sacrifice. So John sees him as our high priest, our intercessor. Now notice as we go on down. His head and hair were white like wool. Now, when you first read that, you think of the fact that Jesus was probably 33 or 34 years old when he was crucified, dead, resurrected, appeared to the disciples, descended. And white hair doesn't seem to fit into that picture. And so some commentators, somebody used to always say that the best way to study the Bible is to let the commentary be interpreted by the Bible, not the other way around. As um, as you read here, John sees him as having hair white as snow. Some commentators say that means the ever-living one. The Ancient of Days. I think it means something else. It may mean that. One day we'll know. But if you've ever taken a psychology course, even Psychology 101, 
You know, there is that that happens sometimes. When some, someone experiences the trauma, great trauma, psychological trauma, and overnight his hair turns white. I mentioned that in, a, in another church a few weeks ago. And standing in the lobby after the service, uh, one of my friends came up. And he said, Dick, my brother went to Vietnam. And he suffered such trauma that although his hair was dark when he went there, it was snow white when he came back. The trauma, psychological trauma. Now, if Christ, and he did, if Christ took my sins on his body on the tree, one who never sinned, the sinless one, never sinned, tempted like we are, yet without sin, it would be very, very traumatic. But he didn't just bear my sins or yours, and by the way, yours would too. But when you consider that on that cross, he was dying for the sins of everybody that's ever sinned. He became sin for us who knew no sin, the Bible said. And the trauma of that, I think, is illustrated here in what he experienced psychologically as he, sinless, became sin for us to pay a payment we could not pay ourselves ever and to pay it in full. When he said on that cross to Telestai, he was saying it is finished. And what he, the word is stronger than sometimes the English wants to present it or can present it. The word means what I have done, I have done so completely that it can never be improved upon. That's what he did for your sins and mine. Ian Paisley was uh, preaching at Bible conference at Bob Jones University. My freshman year, I think. He did several years when I was there. And he, he started doing something I really didn't like too much at the time. He was, he was using five points, tulip. And he got to the point where limited atonement. And he interpreted it this way, and this way I believe. He said, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash the sins of this world and ten worlds besides. But efficient only to those who receive it. That's what I believe personally. On that cross, bearing all the sins of the world, so that whosoever accepts it will be accepted. Okay, he's paid your bill. But you reject it, and there's no payment efficient for you. It's efficient for you. But unless you yourself say, God, I'm that sinner, and I need Jesus, 
And I trust Him and what He's done to bear my sins. And I ask you to forgive me. God will do that. Now, God knows everything, so He'll work out a whole bunch of other stuff. But the fact is, the blood of Christ pays our sin debt. But if we want that sin debt paid, we'd better trust Him and turn to Him and accept Him. So then you go on. Clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Have you ever seen somebody that the, their personality is just, just jutting, you know? It's like, it's like they look at you and they're looking right through you, you know? And you think, oh no, she knows what I'm talking about. She knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm thinking about. Oh, goodness. That's somewhat what's described here. Eyes like fire. Jesus sees, and this is one of the wonderful things about grace. Jesus looks at us, eyes like fire. He looks at us. He knows everything about us. He knows every thought that we think. He knows everything we say. He knows what we do in the dark. He knows what we do in the light. He sees us as though he had eyes like fire. But here's the amazing thing. He loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. And he's willing to forgive us and cleanse us and make us what we ought to be. Eyes like fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. The Apostles' Creed goes back to 150 A.D. And it states this. That he was crucified, descended into hell. And let captivity captive. Brass, and you see here, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Brass is a symbol of judgment in the Bible. And it represents the fact that he bore all of our sin debt. He endured all our hell, which we deserve. That's grace. He bore our judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And his voice is the sound of many waters. Now, you know, sometimes in the scripture, the waters kind of represent the peoples of the earth. It represents other stuff, but that's what some of the commentators say also. And there's no language on the face of this earth that he doesn't understand. Sometimes when we're baby Christians, we think, okay, I've got to... I've got to pray this way, you know. We try to think of all the theological words that we've heard once or so. And so we want to tell God, oh, you know, God, you almighty one, you all-powerful one, majestic in the heavens, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. God knows who he is. We're afraid to use the kind of language we're used to. But he knows that language, too. I found out as a 16-year-old kid who had one desire in life at that moment, and that was to be a, a singer. 
uh, believe it or not, and uh, was, was really, you know, not in church for a couple years. I found out that when I gave my heart to Jesus, when he kept knocking on my door for about six months, I'd gone to Sunday school, and uh, basically my teenage Sunday school class consisted of talking about what we did the Saturday night before. And I didn't have to find out what we did the Saturday night before. I did it, you know. I was involved in that. So I decided I'd sit home and I'd read 12 chapters in the Bible every Sunday until I read through the Bible. And that took a couple years. And then after, after that, right at that time, Elvis Presley got out of the army. Elvis Presley and his parents went to an Assembly of God church in Memphis. The same church that the Blackwood Brothers, great gospel singers, went to. His mom died while he was in basic training in Fort Hood in Texas. And when he got out of the army, the first album that, that went out was His Hand in Mine. I bought that album, Love Gospel Music. And I bought that album, and there's a song in it. It was on Facebook. Somebody put it on Facebook the other day, of all things. Because that's back in 1960-something. One of the songs in that album is not theological at all. At least one. It's, a, it's basically, it says, I believe in the man in the sky. I believe with his help I'll get by. And it goes on from there. Doesn't sound very theological. But the introduction was sung by the Jordanaires, who were a famous gospel quartet that backed Elvis in his song, studio singers. And that introduction said, the steps that lead to any church form the stairway to a star. They're part of God and should be trod more often than they are. Now, see, I didn't know a lot of Bible jargon. I didn't know what some things meant. I didn't know that in this description, Jesus says the seven stars in my right hand are the messengers of the seven churches. Pastors. I didn't know that. I thought a star was somebody who got up on a stage and sang to people or had part in a play, and everybody liked that. But God used that simple phrase in that introduction to get this Kansas kid to go back to church and uh, get some things straightened out with the Lord. And for six months, for six months, taking driver's ed, every telephone pull, it was at, at dusk when the shadows come, and every telephone pull cast a shadow of a cross. Everything I read somehow spoke to me about Jesus. Until one night, August 20th, 1962, our youth group were in Colorado at Estes Park for youth camp for the year. My twin sister and I had been um, asked to go. Someone was going to pay our way, but we didn't want to take charity. Dad was out of work. We couldn't afford it. So I hadn't gone. But that night, Friday night, now... 
since I've led youth groups, youth camps, all those things, took part in them. Now I know what goes on. Had no foggy idea then. But the Friday night, about 8.30, when they were around a campfire and they were making decisions for Christ, somebody was praying for me because I couldn't stand it anymore. I was just worn out with God's conviction. And I went up to my bedroom, got down at the foot of my bed. I had a little New Testament, pocket New Testament. You know, It's probably a hundred years old. The cover was worn off of it. It had been some relative of a generation or two before. I had it on my, on my bedstand as a good luck charm. I'd seen one of the days I skipped school, played hooky. I saw an old black and white movie on the TV about some orphan girl who went around the country and she didn't know where to go or what to do, but if she needed help, she'd take her worn out Bible and she'd say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And she'd open it and do what it said. Now, let me tell you something. That's not a good idea, usually. Because you're liable to open it and says, Judas Iscariot went and hung himself. And then you might turn to another passage and it would say, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. That's not always a good rule, but I was in one of those crises moments when I didn't know that. And I asked the Lord to open that Bible to what he wanted me to do, because by this time people are talking to me about becoming a pastor which I figure, where do they get that? And I opened it to Colossians, where it says, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And I gave my heart to Jesus right then, 16-year-old kid. And... He, he filled me with a love and joy and peace I never knew possible. This is not mumbo-jumbo, you know, theology talk. This is just a true testimony. And from that moment till now, God has provided all of my needs. He's taken care of me. He's used me. Using me. Not for anything I can do. Can, what he can do. And so, uh, his voice, as the sound of many waters, to me, illustrates the fact that he, he understands and knows all about us. Our language is no problem to him. My language at that time was jive. Cats, chicks, dig it, all that kind of stuff. I found out he spoke that language, too. He understands us far better than we'll ever understand. A sharp two-edged sword, his word of God is true, cutting through as we open it. He does a spiritual surgery that we need. And his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. 
John perhaps goes back as he sees this to that hillside where he and a couple other disciples are standing there as Elijah and Moses appear to Jesus one time. And the Shekinah of God oozes out of our Lord and, he, and they realize a little better who he is. God himself wrapped in human flesh so that we can see what he is and what he's like. Now notice what happened when John experienced that. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Duh. What would you do if you experienced what he's just experienced? What, what should we do when we realize the God who knows everything, rules the universe, knows all about us, loves us anyway, and comes to us? I think that's what we need to do too. And then notice what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And then he gives them instructions on what to do. Bow your head with me in prayer. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us. We're thankful that you come to us, seeking us. That you understand us far better than we'll ever understand ourselves. When we, when we mess up, you understand that. When we do right, it's because you help us. When we need strength, you're there to strengthen us. When we're brokenhearted, you heal the brokenhearted if we let you. When we say things we shouldn't or when we do things we shouldn't, you're there. Waking us up. Wooing us. Giving us wisdom. Helping us to get whatever straightened out needs to be straightened out. You never forget us. You're there for us. Father, help us. Help us whether it's whether it's a mental thing or whether we get down on our knees before you. Help us to fall at your feet. Help us to say, I love you, Lord. Help us to mean it. Help it to produce a, a desire in us to be the light of this world and the salt of this world so that others, when they look at us in this darker, darker, darker getting place, We'll see hope in what you're doing in our lives and try that out themselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.